morning. My name is uh, Bill Drips, and I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship Church. I discovered the last time I preached a, a trick, and and that is that if I have my hearing aids on when I preach, I'm too quiet. So if I'm not loud enough, just tell me to turn those things off. They make my own voice so loud that it's just do the wrong thing. You know, if you live in an upside-down world, the fact that God has an upside-down kingdom ought to be encouraging. Now, why is that? Well, if you find something that's upside-down and you turn it upside-down yet again, what do you get? Right side up. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So we're going to talk about the upside-down kingdom uh, that God has for us. And if you have a Bible and want to turn to Mark chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses uh, 17 through 31. Mark chapter 10, 17 through 31. And the first thing I want to talk about in terms of this upside-down kingdom is that we need to ask the right questions. In Mark chapter 10, 17 and 18, it says, And as he, meaning Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And in the Greek language, when they write things down, there's no spacing. There's no punctuation. Uh, they just didn't do, they just didn't have those things, so they can't indicate it in the text. But if the Greek text were written in a modern day in a modern day manner, I can't imagine this passage being written without some space after Jesus' response. This guy comes up, says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Say that you were talking to someone and you had been talking to them about the Lord and they say, you know, you are such a great help. Tell me what I need to do to receive Christ. Tell me what I need to do to inherit eternal life. What would you say? Oh, that's wonderful. I'll, I'll be delighted to help you. Jesus does not answer that way. He answers in a very upside down way. He said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's almost as though he's called the guy a knucklehead. I can't imagine how the rest of the crowd responded at this point. I can't imagine that there wasn't the, as they call it, a pregnant pause. And I think the reason they call it that is when does pregnancy end? Well, if you've ever talked to a woman that's pretty close, it never ends, right? So this is one of those uh, those pauses. So the first reason we need to ask the right questions is to help ourselves. By asking the wrong question here, we blind ourselves to the truth. This rich man's question assumes that he is good, right? Hey, Jesus, good old teacher there. I'm one of the good guys too, and I just want to know what I need to do to get into your kingdom, right? He's assuming we're all buddy-buddy and everything is wonderful. And Jesus immediately recognizes that this is a big-time problem. He only wants assurance. 
He isn't asking where he got off track. He's asking for Jesus to bless his current choices. Because of the question he's asking, there's actually no good answer. What would you say to someone who comes up to you and says, you know, I've always done the right thing. You know, what do I need to do to make sure that I'm in with Jesus? <laughs> What's a good answer to that? Yeah, uh, excuse me, but you are so off track, you don't know where the map is. It's not that you don't know where you're going, you don't even know where you are. Because of the question he is asking, there is no good answer. Jesus has to throw him a curveball to get him out of his rut and on the way to a good answer. Um, this last week I was talking to someone about ministry, and uh, we were talking a little bit about what it's like to minister to people and how in general you want to get along and you don't want to unnecessarily do things that make people uncomfortable. And that's all true. There is a time and a place to make people feel uncomfortable. And that is where they are headed the wrong way and don't get it. It's going to make them feel uncomfortable when you do that. If I'm ever driving and you see me driving into an accident, do whatever it takes, you know. Apologize later, but in the meantime, scream. <laughs> and maybe I'll get the picture in time to avoid the wreck. We are not told how Jesus knew this. You know, perhaps he had um, met him before or had heard him of him through others. Jesus might have known just because he's God and God knows everything. I think it was probably something about the man's attitude. I don't think he had the attitude of gratitude. I think he had an attitude of arrogance. I think that because none of these disciples were amazed I think that because none of the disciples were amazed that Jesus knew. Do you notice how they never said, Lord, how do you know that about that guy? Later, we, we, what we will be seeing what they were amazed at. So it doesn't matter because we can always ask good questions and listen carefully to the answers. If we ask good questions of people, we'll find out what's really going on with them. And do you see how Jesus did that here? He asked the man, why do you call me good? None is good but God alone. Now that really ought to bring everybody screeching to a halt in their tracks. Jesus, the best man who has ever lived, uh, is able to heal people. It's, it's like he's done, he's done wonders and miracles. And he says, why do you call me good? <laughs> Yeah, it's a real good question. Uh, yeah, why, why would you do that? Obviously, it's because there is none good but God alone, and he is, in fact, God. And that's what he's pointing out to this guy, and this guy does not get it. He just does not get it. Um, some of you may know that uh, Bonnie, my wife, is in the hospital today. She had gone into the hospital a week or two. Well, actually, on February 18th, her uh, atrial fibrillation in her heart, and they kept her there for eight days, and finally let her go. That was like the parting of the Red Sea. I was with, you know, Moses waving my staff, saying, "Let my people go." 
the down Pharaoh and the Brits. It was nice. We got out. <laughs> but later that week, and, and the AFib that she went in for is basically doing fine. It's not something that you ever cure, but it's something that you uh, can live with just fine with drugs and stuff. But as time went on this last week, uh, she wasn't getting better. Every day I would ask her, how much better is she? And she tries to be real positive. She goes, well, maybe that much. I think, hmm, this is not good. And and I started asking a lot of questions about, isn't there some doctor we can go see? And uh, we did see one on uh, Thursday. And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm not really seeing any issue here. Maybe it's just you need to take a little longer. And we appreciate that doctor. We, he's a good guy. Um, I didn't particularly like that answer. And I don't think Bonnie liked it either. either. And so we uh, went to see another doctor. Um, actually, it's his partner. The first doctor we saw was out of town. So I'm back to see the partner. He asked us a bunch of questions. And he says, okay, I know what we're going to do. We're going to go to the hospital. And you're going to go in the ER, and they're probably going to admit you. And, uh, and we really appreciate that. So the doctor that uh, that started working on her there, Dr. Copas, he started tracking down Bonnie's problem. And it was really interesting. How I was watching him, how he went through this. In other words, this was a problem that we had seen several doctors about. And all of them were saying, yeah, we don't really see any real problem. Here, what you're saying, the symptoms, you know, fever every day, um, shortness of breath. But, uh, yeah, we just don't know what to do next. And so he said, basically, okay, I see all these symptoms. Obviously, there is a problem. We don't know where it's coming from. And he started to work the problem step by step. He was constantly asking questions and eliminating possibilities. And the way we knew that is not because he was sitting in our exam room asking us questions, but because every 15 minutes another lab tech would come in to draw some more blood to do a different test. And, you know, when you really want to find out the answer, that feels like a good, you know, you're just real happy. And, uh, and so he continued to do that. And uh, there was one test that Bonnie had proved allergic to before. And you could tell he was trying to figure out a way around it. And finally, he came back in and said, yeah, I think we need to do that test. And it's like, okay, it's a CAT scan, and she's allergic to CAT scan dye. So zap her up with the anti-allergy medication. And what he was looking for was blood clots. He told us that, you know, blood clots can cause this. It could be real dangerous. We need to do this. Okay, so we did it. And so yesterday evening, came back in and said, the good news is you don't have any blood clots. The other good news is that we found what the real problem is. And it's, it's blood in their lungs. They don't know the actual cause of that, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's something that, excuse me, not blood, it, Fluid in her lungs. Sorry, a little bit around her heart as well, but fluid in her lungs. Um, and that's not good news, uh, but it is good news in terms of explains all the other symptoms she's had and gives them a focus uh, for getting the thing done. 
One of the things that, that really impressed me about Dr. Coppice as he worked through this, or Dr. Coppice as he worked through this, is his, his, his continuing to ask questions and that, that he wasn't afraid to know, to admit that he didn't know. Okay, this guy happens to be the director of hospital medicine for Dyson. <laughs> yeah, how did we luck out? And yet he approached it as though he did not know anything. And because he did that, he found out something. We need to ask the right questions. We need to ask it to help us. We need to ask it, ask him to help others. For me and my <clears throat> job during the week, I often am involved in, in counseling people and talking to people one-on-one. And, and, and I find that listening is the hardest work I ever do. I would much, I would even rather pay taxes than listen. <clears throat> it's, 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 it's something that I, I have to do regularly. It's hard, but I also find it the most effective thing that I do. <clears throat> there have been so many times where I have been listening carefully and really having to exert myself to do that. And after I've listened for a while, I've asked them a question about what they've said and had them ask, how did you know that? And I'm sitting there thinking, you just told me 15 minutes ago. You just told me that. <laughs> and, and it was really, really interesting. Actually, they had known the answer all along. And that the only thing that I needed to do was listen long enough that I could actually figure out what they said and what they, what they were doing. I like to think that I'm really brilliant, that I know the answers, but boy, that I can help you. And what I find is that that's not actually the case. The Lord can help people. And if I will just keep my mouth shut long enough, the Lord can actually sometimes help them through me. So we need to ask the right questions to, to help ourselves, to help others. We need to write, ask the right questions to know God. <clears throat> One of the things that we often want to do is tell God who we think he is. And we explain to God who he's supposed to be and what he's supposed to do. What we need to do is ask him who he is. He will tell you he has revealed himself in his word, the Bible. Um, that song that we just learned today, it talked about um, wrestling with God and asking God that we could lose. Is, is that how the words go? And I don't know if you know where that comes from. I was saying Psalm 46. Does it actually say that in Psalm 46? Okay. Okay, good. So <clears throat> where I'm pretty sure that comes from. I'm, I have no... no no idea in terms of the inside scoop on the writer, but I do know the scriptures. And there is someone in the Bible who is named he who struggles with God. That's his name. And that is what the name Israel means. And it's because when um, when he came to Penuel and was actually at a very scary time in his life, 
the Lord arranged for him to wrestle with him. And he came out of that wrestling with God and enduring until God blessed him. And the, the thing that we need to realize is that wrestling with God is actually a really good thing. And what Israel said at that time was that he was going to cling to the Lord until he blessed him. And that's where we need to be. Is we need to be wrestling with God and clinging to him till he blesses us. And I can really appreciate that this is not an easy thing. Uh, it's a, a very, very difficult thing to do. But as we struggle with God through the difficulties that we run into, he reveals himself to us. Um, years and years ago, I, uh, in high school, I uh, was uh, on the, uh, took a, a class in wrestling. PE class. And have you ever done the wrestling thing in high school or whatever? <clears throat> and um, I was the second biggest guy in the class. Now think of this as a dance class. Who was I dancing with? Right. So every every PE class, I would get to wrestle this guy. And he was a good 30 to 40 pounds heavier than me. He was at least two inches taller. And he was faster than I was. It was like, where's the good news in this picture? And so every day at PE, I would go out there and get cream. Now, the thing about wrestling, if you've ever wrestled, is it exhausts every muscle in your body. And you get to the point where you can't go any further and every muscle is screaming and you just have to anyway because that other guy's pushing on you. It is quite quite an experience. And so when it talks about wrestling with God, I always think back to that experience, that it can truly be agonizing. In fact, the New Testament word for wrestling with God in prayer is the same Greek word from which we get the term agonizing. We, we got to the end of that class, and in the final matchup that I had with this guy, I fought him to a duel, a draw. I, and, and I'll tell you what, we ended up that, that match, both of us on our hands and knees on the mat, unable to get up. Each of us had our hand on the other guy. <laughs> Neither one of us could move. And the coach called it a, a, a draw, and I called it a biggest win of the year. So we need to ask the right questions. We need to hold on to God until he gives us the answers that we need. And the thing that we're actually fighting through is our own upside downness. And he's trying to turn us right side up. So ask the right questions. <clears throat> Let's go on to uh, uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 19 through 27. And this is Jesus' answer to the uh, rich man's question of what must I do to be saved. And he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, teacher, all these have I kept from my youth. Now, really, at that point, isn't, isn't he incredibly lucky that the Lord just didn't post him on the spot? 
All these have I kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And that's always a tremendous challenge to me. Because when somebody is just saying the wrong thing, the last thing I want to do is just really love them. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Who then? Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So what's repeated in this passage? That they were amazed, that they were exceedingly astonished. The point is that the disciples were shocked. Evidently, they had, they shared the misconception with the rich man. Then the basic idea is that if someone is riches, has riches, that that must mean they have God's favor. Obviously, Jesus doesn't agree with this. And we have the tendency to, to look at things that way. If things are going well for someone in life, don't we tend to look over and say, boy, they're really doing something right. And uh, we hit some hard spots in life especially when they're connected with our walk with God somehow. And we want to say, what in the world am I doing wrong? How in the world can these pagans out there doing whatever they want, how can they get that blessing and not me? So really what these, what the disciples are believing is not so much different than what we believe. But the reality, it's always by grace. <clears throat> Another way of saying that is it's not what you know, it's who you know. That if you know Jesus, you're in. And that needs to be a whole goal, is knowing him, not being good enough to clear the heavenly bar. If we know him, he gives us his righteousness. And that's one of the things that, uh, that I appreciate about the, the doctor uh, that we saw on yesterday morning. And he uh, was tough getting into him. I mean, it's Saturday, right? What doctor likes to work on a Saturday? And, uh, uh, but he, he did see us. And, uh, he very carefully listened to everything. Um, and, uh, the, and finally, when he came down to it, he said, okay, this is what I'm going to tell you. He said, you have a problem. And you need some, you need to, to, to address this right away. Unfortunately, here in the office, we are not equipped to handle what you've got. So 
for I am going to send you to where they are equipped. So back to the ER, that just like we had done about two weeks before. Um, and the one thing that I really, really, really appreciate about this doctor is that he told us he didn't have what it was going to take to help us and sent us to the people who did. And you know, that really, that is amazing how much humility that showed. Uh, one of the interesting things is we've lived in State College for a while and, and <clears throat> you get to know different different doctors and different people. And uh, let's, say, let's just put it this way. This doctor did not always have the kindest and gentlest reputation in State College. And what was amazing is, first of all, we noticed as we were talking to him that he actually was very kind and gentle to us yesterday morning. Obviously, I don't know how it happened, but the man has really grown and changed as a person. The second, just as in his, his medical skills, the humility that we saw and the insight to realize, okay, this is past, past just what we can do here. He did not tell us to take two Tylenol and go call me more. And, and we, just, we just really appreciated that. Just showed that humility that he understood that in terms of the door to healing, it was impossible to enter through his office. <clears throat> so we have to ask the right questions. We have to realize that it actually is impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's not what people expected Jesus to say. But that is what he said. And then finally, the kingdom of God is really upside down. And of course, as we've said, that's because when you turn something that's upside down, upside down again, you get right side. Mark chapter 10, verses 28 through 31. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. You will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers, sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What is our idea of the perfect king and the perfect kingdom? Well, I just happened to be reading a book called Edward III, The Perfect King. And it's fascinating. He's not somebody that I've ever particularly heard about or known much about. Um, and he lived in the 1300s in England. Um, but have you ever heard of a place called Windsor Castle? Yeah, he built most of the, most of the main structures there. Uh, in fact, his, uh, his castle building uh, was actually the apex of English castle building. Uh, in terms of castles the size of Windsor Castle, he built 10 or 20 of them. I mean, it was awesome. He, um, 
His father was a poor enough king that they actually deposed him. And uh, they set up a, uh, a regent who decided he did not want to give up the regency. And so Edward actually, as a teenager, had to get some buddies together and depose this regent. And that, it's all very interesting. And uh, as, as still a teenager, his kingdom was invaded by the Scots. And he grabbed his buddies and all the men he could get and went up after the Scots. He was outnumbered like six to one. They took their stand on a hill. He had all of his knights get off of their horses, stand on the hill, he raid his archers, and they let the Scots charge him, and he still killed Scots until they had they, they made a wall so high he couldn't get to the rest of the Scots. It's unbelievable. And uh, and the English really, really, really appreciated that. If you have armies invading your country on a regular basis. Somebody that marches out and stops that kind of nonsense is a hero. He spent the next 25 years subduing the Scots, defeating the French, rebuilding the English economy, reestablishing English democracy with the the, um, parliament. Um, It's just amazing all that he did and accomplished in his reign. He was known to his subjects as the perfect king and he did all of this in the midst of the Great Death, the Black Plague. That's the kind of person we think of on a human level as a great king. He's a man that, that when the bad guys were at the gate, he went first to take them out. He's the guy when there was terrible problems in the kingdom, like the, the Black Plague, they didn't have a solution for it, yet he led them all through it. When the economy went tanked, he, he figured out how to make that work as well. Truly a remarkable man. This is not the kind of king that Jesus was. Edward III was all about his glory and his prominence. And uh, he, did, he did a number of things really right. He also spent more on a day in terms of what he ate than most people made made for a year. The perfect king is not Edward III. The perfect king is Jesus. Think of how the rich man responded versus how Peter responded. What did the rich man say when uh, Jesus told him to sell everything he he had? Well, he just got depressed and went away sorrowing. How did Peter, Peter respond? He said, see, we have left everything and followed you. And the difference in response of this rich man and of Peter illustrates the main point. Thinking you know will blind you. Admitting you are blind will enable you to see. The, 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 uh, 
There's a hymn that talks about there's none so blind as he who will not see. So how do we apply this? Ask yourself in whatever situation you're in, no matter how wrong you have been, ask yourself, what am I doing wrong? What do I need to learn? The last time I spoke, I spoke... um, uh, about relationships and and how they can be very messy and marriage especially. And one of the things I talked about is seeing the log in your own eye before you, getting the log out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye. We need to ask ourselves, what do I need to learn? We need to say, how could I be being blinded? How could I be being And then finally, we need to choose to be last. Do you find that difficult? I always like being first. When you drive up to a traffic light and the light changes just as you get there, so the other traffic has to stop and you just go through, what do you think? Do you think about all those poor people that that got the red light? Who thinks about the poor people that got the red light? (laughs) We are just wired to think the other way. We need to choose to be last. And the reason we need to choose to be last is that is how, in a right-side-up kingdom, you get to be first. What does Jesus promise us as we choose to to be last? He says, not only will we receive back all that we gave up, we will receive a hundredfold now and in the future. So as we lay our lives down for others like Jesus laid his life down for us, we will be enabled. Um, we, we, we can be last so that we then uh, can be first in his kingdom. We're going to celebrate uh, communion this morning. And the thing that that really relates in this passage to me is in communion, where Jesus is calling us on us to be last so that we can be first, is to look at his example and how he chose to be last for us. He chose to lay his life down that we might live. Part of being last is when the dirty jobs come along, you choose to be first. And certainly the the biggest challenge that we will ever face is how to deal with our sinfulness. How do we deal with our rebellion against God? And Jesus chose to deal with that by dying for us. And that's how this passage relates to remembering what Jesus did for us. That he laid his life down that we might know him and know the Father.